This is the season of Advent, and I don't know if you're like me and you grew up in an anti-Anglican church, that's what it seemed like I grew up in, Um, then sometimes Advent was downplayed or not even observed at all. We just kind of rushed to Christmas. And so it's good for us. I'm so thankful in the last number of years um, that Baptist churches have learned from our brothers and sisters and other traditions, and we're embracing more and more the season of Advent. Because... I think that Advent is kind of a counter-cultural approach to Christmas. So in the midst of the rush and the busyness and the get, 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 Advent calls us to slow down a little bit. Advent is a word that kind of means arrival or coming. And so during the time of Advent, it's the anticipation of the birth of Jesus. And during this time of anticipation, we prepare our hearts. And so that's what's so important during these next uh, four Sundays as we work toward uh, the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It's kind of like a pregnancy. Not that I know much about pregnancy or should speak about it, but I have observed it from time to time. And during pregnancy, you're anticipating the baby and the birth of the child, but you're also getting ready. And so I invite you over this Advent season to get ready, to prepare your heart as we journey together uh, during this time. So in order to prepare our hearts, (laughs) I've chosen some very unusual Christmas stories. And it's not my fault. I didn't include them in the Christmas story. I didn't include them in the birth of Jesus story. Matthew did in his gospel. So blame Matthew. And uh, so as we work through this together, uh, we're going to explore the five women in the Bible whose pregnancies brought about the birth of the Messiah. And so this is going to be an important journey, I think, for us to enter into. And as you saw on the, uh, the slide that came up, and perhaps I don't know if we have another photo of it, but uh, I contacted an artist in the States, um, Cynthia Farrell Johnson. I came across her artwork as she depicted the five women in Matthew's genealogy. And today we're going to be talking about Tamar. And if you want to see all the artwork, I've posted it on the bulletin board uh, that's in the hallway. And Cynthia gave us permission to use it freely, which was very generous of her, and I appreciate it very much. Well, have you ever explored your family tree? Like, have you ever dug into it? Anybody do the 23andMe kind of stuff and and dug into it? Um, I'm always curious about it. I'm always curious about those DNA tests. I'm pretty sure I know what it will say. It probably won't say that I'm from Korea. I would love to have been from Korea, perhaps. Samuel is an awesome guy. Uh, But it probably locates me somewhere around Scotland. And there's a reason for that. Because as I started digging into my family tree, I found it very boring. My oldest brother, 
His name is Robert Simpson, and he was born in Glasgow, Scotland. My dad, his name was Robert Simpson, and he's born in Glasgow, Scotland. His dad was named Robert Simpson, and he was born in Glasgow, Scotland. And his dad, for some reason, was named Earl. <laughs> no, he wasn't. I wish he was. He was named Robert Simpson, and he was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Find some other names. It's kind of funny. We, we just upgraded, uh, this is maybe too much information. We upgraded our bed and um, the frames, it fits with the text. The frame around the bed, uh, we looked and there's a delivery notice. And this is a kind of an antique piece of furniture. And the delivery notice was, you won't believe this, it was to Robert Simpson. I, and not my dad, but some other Robert Simpson. There's enough of them in the world, I think. So I thought my genealogy, my family tree was a little boring until one day I had to sit down with my parents and ask them about my family. I was asking about my family because I was trying to get a certain security clearance that I needed. And I had to list all of the relatives who lived outside of Canada, which are literally all of my relatives, right? And so it was a long visit. And my dad said to me, I don't think you want to do this. I'm like, well, now that you said that, I definitely want to do this. Find out what's happening in my family tree. And I said, well, why? What's the problem? And he said, well, two of your uncles are actually in prison for murder. It's like, tell me more. Now suddenly I'm like, I, I just want to know one thing. Were they both named Robert Simpson? And he said, no, they weren't. So it's interesting as we start to dig back in our family heritage, uh, sometimes we find very exciting things. Sometimes we find interesting things, intriguing things. And sometimes we find dark stories too, don't we? And some of us don't have to dig too far back to find some darkness within our families. Well, in Matthew's gospel, which we didn't read, but you can go home and read, uh, Matthew and Luke start their story of the gospel by telling the genealogy of Jesus. They do it in different ways and using different names and for different purposes. But one of the interesting things I find is that Matthew and his genealogy includes five women when you include Mary within that genealogy. What's interesting about that is that normally when they tell the, the, um, the heritage of a person, uh, they focus on the fathers. But Matthew has decided to include some of the mothers. And when you look into the story of some of these mothers, in fact, all of them, they seem to have a common thread. And the common thread is this. Every story has an element of scandal and surprise. Every single one of these stories has an element of scandal and surprise. And you'd think in some ways that Matthew or the gospel writers might want to cover that up, kind of like my dad wanted to cover up some of my uncles. Uh, but no, Matthew includes it. And so we have to ask, why? What are these women doing in the genealogy? Why does Matthew include this? Why does he make the gospel so raw and real and not glossed over? I love what Connor was saying about that authenticity as we come to this season, to wrestle with our own emotions. Some of us are coming up to Christmas for the first time, having faced a major loss of a loved one. For some of us, Christmas is a very, very lonely time. And we, we see this even reflected in the telling of the story that there is darkness and concern and scandal and surprise, even in the genealogy of Jesus. And so we're going to dig into that. One of the things we have to realize, though, is that when Matthew and Luke tell their genealogies, 
It's not a 23andMe story. <laughs> it's not like they uh, tested um, the, the gene sequence of Jesus and found out all his ancestors. In fact, it's not really like a family tree. The stories that we find at the beginning of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, I've been saying John all along? No, I've been saying Luke, right, okay. Uh, the story at the beginning of Matthew, um, it's not really a family tree, it's more of a theological context for us. It's a way of telling the story and introducing us to the story so that we begin to understand the message. And so Matthew does that very intentionally, and I think he's doing it to set us up to understand the purpose and the message of Jesus. That's why he tells us the genealogy of Christ. And we find that it becomes very clear when we come to the end of Matthew's gospel. Because the very last words of Jesus are literally, as you're going into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all nations. And this is a revolutionary thought. The idea that Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, is not just for a group of people or a local tribe of people, but is actually for the whole world. That is radical. But Matthew sets us up for, to expect that right in the genealogy, because at least four of these women come from the outside. They are not part of the covenants of promise. They're actually outsiders. And they're brought into the story. And Matthew is saying, pay attention, because this gospel is going to go to a whole lot of outsiders as we are gathered here today. And we're brought into the gospel because of that. So that's what we're looking at. So we learn about the message and the purpose of Jesus by digging into these courageous mothers who are in the story of the Messiah. And so we're going to start by looking at the story of Tamar. And I have to tell you, if you go home and read this story on your own, just be warned. It's graphic. It's an incredibly graphic story. I noticed that when I open up a Netflix movie now, you know, you get the warnings at the top, and it usually says, you know, violence, swearing, drug use, and now it even says product placement. They're warning me that they're going to do product placement uh, in, the, in the movies now. Well, there needs to be a kind of disclaimer or a warning when you come to the story of Tamar because it gets very, very graphic. Uh, but the important thing is to understand that this is not actually about sex. I asked the uh, footnotes group uh, last week when we began, I told them what I was gonna do. And I said, so how much sex do you want at Christmas time? My, my wife is cringing inside as soon as I say this. Um, but, but these stories, every one of these stories are sexually charged, but it's not about sex. In fact, the story of Tamar, as we discover, is about justice. And that's what we have to hold on to as we go through this. Well, the story moves along fairly quickly, and it covers many years. It's kind of an odd placement, Genesis chapter 38. Um, so right before it, we have the story of Joseph, and right after, we have the story of Joseph. And all of a sudden, right in the middle, we get this glimpse of Judah. Uh, Joseph is in Egypt, and he is going to end up thriving and being a person of integrity in Egypt. But it's almost like this story says, meanwhile, back at the ranch... We find Judah, and we find his whole story here compressed into one chapter. And the narrator, uh, the person writing it down, he moves this along fairly quickly by using key phrases. When you go home and read it, you'll notice these. He uses phrases like, at that time, in the course of time, some years later, three months later, 
and when the time came. It's a fascinating way that he has constructed this story to kind of move us through the events in the life of Judah. And so before we go too far, and before I kind of make the punchline, I need to give you an overview of the story and touch on some of those details that are pertinent and can be sort of PG-13. We'll try. Are you ready for this? Okay, here we go. Take a drink. Judah, he is the fourth son of Jacob. He's not the first, but he's certainly kind of the most dominant. In fact, in the previous chapter, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph, remember Joseph with his fancy dream coat, um, to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Now, maybe he was doing it to protect his brother, but that was his idea. Judah is actually kind of the dominant one. It's the reason we have the Jews and not the Joes, right? Joseph is talked about a lot. Uh, but it ends up the line of the Messiah comes through Judah. So it's very important that we pay attention to his story. But Judah, after he sells his brother into slavery, uh, the passage said that he actually leaves his brothers and takes a Canaanite wife. All that is very, very specific language. In some of our translations, it says, it says he left home and got married. No, that's not really what happened. He left his brothers behind. I, I don't know if he was trying to create distance, if he was a little ashamed of what had happened, but he intentionally left his brothers and he took a wife. That's the language of the Bible. I know sometimes we talk about having a biblical marriage, but we have to be careful because biblical marriage is kind of a transaction between two men where one man purchases a woman from another man. That's what we're finding. That's important in the story because Tamar is just an object who is exchanged. And so as we go through this, uh, Judah, first of all, he takes a Canaanite wife and he has three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And these three sons uh, mature and they grow up within the course of this chapter, by the way. And when Ur is old enough, then Judah takes a wife for Ur and her name is Tamar. That's how she's introduced to us. So she is of the Canaanites, of the population around, and already Judah is living in, Can in Canaan and he takes a wife of the Canaanites, which he wasn't supposed to do. So already he's kind of off track, he's off course, and that becomes very clear. Well, it, it, it turns out that Ur was a wicked man. I mean, maybe we should have known because his name spelled backwards in Hebrew means evil. So that's the first sign, right? And so he was so wicked, and we're not told what his wickedness was, but he's so wicked that God decides to snuff him out, and he dies. So what's going to happen now to Tamar? Well, the law of leveret marriage means that the next brother in line was meant to take Tamar as a wife and get her pregnant and continue the line of his brother. But Onan, he did not like this idea. He was quite happy to take Tamar. He was quite happy to use her literally as a sex slave. But he was not willing to fulfill his pledge and what was according to the law because he didn't want a challenger within his family who might distract and take away from his own inheritance uh, to his own children. 
And so he refuses to fulfill his pledge to Tamar, and God is angry at him. Now, if you read the text, it gets much more descriptive than what I'm willing to get into today. But as you read through it, uh, just remember to focus. It's not about the act of sex. It's actually about justice. And Tamar is seeing no justice to this point in the story. And so what does God do to Onan? He snuffs him out. Now, we can talk about that some other time. But anyway, so now Ur and Onan are gone. But thankfully, there's a third son, right? And so the third son, Shalah, is now meant to take Tamar as his wife in order to continue the line of the first brother. But this is where Judah steps in. And he says, I've already lost two sons. I think it's something to do with Tamar, your bad luck or something. And so I can't afford to lose another son. Here's the deal. Shelah is too young for all this nonsense. So we're going to protect him, and you're going to go back to your father and, get this, remain a widow. You see the power he still had over her? Now, remember, we just discovered the story of Ruth. Remember when uh, Ruth and uh, Naomi and Orpah are traveling back to Judah? What does Naomi say to them? Go back to your houses and not remain a widow, but marry again. She released them. There was grace in releasing them from their bonds and their vows. Not so with Judah. He says, you're going to go back, but you will remain a widow. And he had no intention, this, the passage says, no intention to see justice done to Tamar. And so this is what's happening. Judah has one more son, but instead sends Tamar away. And so in these verses, up to this point, Tamar has no agency. She has no power in the story. She is described with great passivity. She's very passive in all these verses. She's an object that is passed around. Can you get that sense of, we should be feeling some disgust in all of this, as well as some sorrow. She is victimized, and we begin to realize that a huge injustice is taking place in the life of Tamar. So, time passes, and Judah continues on until one day his wife dies. He loses his wife, and what does he do? After a time of mourning, he gets on with business, he goes to a sheep shearing party. That's kind of what it is. It's just like these guys in the Bible, I don't know. It's, it's like Boaz. Boaz was an amazing guy. But still, after threshing the grain, what does he do? He has a few bevies. He goes and sleeps by the grain at night. Well, this is happening to Judah. He heads out with his good bud, and they go and they uh, do a sheep shearing party, and they probably do some drinking. And then he's feeling frisky. That's literally what's happening in the story. And so Judah goes looking for a prostitute. And he comes across one on the side of the road. But this prostitute is not a temple prostitute as he thinks. I mean, even that, he shouldn't be doing that, right? That's not okay. But he thinks there's a temple prostitute. But instead, it's actually, we know that part of the story, right? It's Tamar. Because she has heard that Judah's coming along and that Shalah has grown up and she hasn't received Shalah as a husband, or hasn't been given to Shalah as a husband, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And so Judah comes along, and they agree on payment. One goat, 
I don't know, is that a lot? It seems like a lot to me, but one goat. The only problem is Judah doesn't have the goat in his back pocket and he doesn't have any goats around. And so he says, here, can you hold my driver's license? I'm going to run back to the ATM and I'm going to get some money and I'll be right back. Basically, that's what he's saying. He says, you know, take this seal of mine, take my staff, which is not just a random walking stick. It, it might have been given to him to show his authority in the region, his power, and, and take this rope that's attached to my seal and you hold on to this and I will pay you back. Now, this is the only point in the story that Judah shows a slight shred of integrity. He agrees to send his buddy with the goat to find Tamar and pay her back. But when the guy goes, what, what happens? He can't find her. Why? Because there was no prostitute. And now Judah's in a very uh, tough predicament. Now he's like, well, if I continue to search for her, I'm going to become embarrassed. And so, you know what? I'll get another staff. <laughs> I'll get another ID. I'll apply for another social insurance card, whatever it was. You know, I'll get some other ID that, uh, and she can just keep it. Who cares? It's just some random prostitute. So the narrator moves us along. And this is the part that I love the most. Three months later, dum, dum, dum. Right? Literally, that's what's happening in the story. Three months later, we're fast forward. And somebody snitches on Tamar, goes to Judah and says, hey, you know that widow of yours? She's prego. And so she must have been prostituting herself. And what happens with Judah? He feigns this great righteousness, right? Bring her out! We're going to burn her alive! Who is this guy? Right? Um, but probably he's thinking, this is a very convenient way to deal with the situation that I'm caught up in. He doesn't know about the prostitution yet. He knows nothing about that, but he definitely doesn't want to, to give Tamar to his youngest son. So he decides to burn her alive. She comes out and says, no problem. I just want you to know though, <laughs> uh, that this child that I'm carrying, the guy that knocked me up, uh, these are his. <laughs> and Jesus is like, oops, right? Now this is where the story gets interesting. Because Judah is convicted. We see this several times throughout the Bible. This happens to David too. After David does, uh, and well, I shouldn't give that part of the sermon away. We'll do that later. But this happens where, where he's confronted and he recognizes his sin. He owns up to it. And he says this amazing statement, amazing statement. He says, she, Tamar, is more righteous than I am. He admits it. Tamar is more righteous than I am. So what do we do with this story? How do we access it? How does it fit into Christmas? How does it fit into the gospel of Jesus? Maybe you've never heard that story before and you're just, there's a little bit of shock still going on. But it is an important story because the themes of the gospel are rooted in stories like this. The theme of justice we see it because of the injustice shown to Tamar. We're reminded because of Judah's sin 
that God calls us to defend and to care for the vulnerable. I could give you hundreds of verses. You probably know many of them where God calls us specifically to care for the vulnerable. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And Judah did none of that. He made things worse. Judah used his power, his influence, to make things worse. He thwarted justice. And it reminds us of that call on God's heart. I'm pretty sure that Ur and Onan were wiped out because they also thwarted justice. And so we have this theme of justice that surfaced in, in the gospel. Jesus came to set things right. We also have the theme of inclusion which is so profound in this gospel, in this story in the Old Testament and so many others as well. And it points us toward the gospel that brings in the outsider, that brings in those that are excluded from the covenants and makes them part of the family. And we see this, this uh, Gentile woman and other Gentile women woven into the line of the Messiah. And so this gospel of inclusion comes in. I was challenged when I hear Tony Campolo uh, talk about how sometimes we're tempted to draw a line and put people on the other side of the line in an attempt to exclude them. And he warns us. He says, whenever you draw a line like that and you put people on the other side, you have to be prepared because Jesus is often on the other side of that line as well. <laughs> and we find that in the story of the gospel with these women that are brought in. But it's also a story of transformation. And this is very gospel for us, and it's the transformation of Judah's character. And here's the evidence of it. Remember, Judah, we've listed some of his sins. Hopefully you've seen that he's not a great guy. He's not a Boaz, right? Uh, Judah is some other kind of guy. I mean, he sold his brother into slavery. He takes a Canaanite wife. He refuses justice to Tamar. He's willing to sleep with a temple prostitute. He wants to burn a woman alive. I mean, all of this is, does not speak well of Judah until this point, this point when he's confronted with his sin and something radical happens to Judah. He changes. And the reason we know that is because if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 44, we pick up the story of Joseph when Judah and Joseph get back together. Now, Joseph, he's like second in command in Egypt. He has saved all of Egypt and all the surrounding region from famine. But Judah and his brothers, they're starving. And so what do they do? They go down. They don't realize it's Joseph at first, right? And they beg for food. Joseph recognizes them. And he says, I want you to bring my youngest brother, Benjamin. So they go and get Benjamin. But Joseph wants to keep Benjamin there. And so he kind of tricks them. And Benjamin is end up, ends up being accused of theft because uh, Joseph says, I'm going to keep him now as a slave forever. Here, you have to go back. But what happens? What happens to Judah? Well, in Genesis uh, chapter 44, we find this. Judah says to Joseph, remember, this is the brother he sold into slavery. He says, my Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy, Benjamin. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. He's willing to sacrifice his life now. Something has happened to Judah. Something has changed him. 
He's not looking after number one. He's not pursuing his own means and his own ends. He is changed. And now he's willing to sacrifice his life for another. And that is a precursor of the descendant of Judah, the Lion of Judah, Jesus, who gives his life for us. That's the transformation that we find in this. Judah identifies, that's an important uh, word in this passage, identifies and owns up to his own sin and recognizes a righteousness that's greater his own than his own in another. So let's wrap this up. Where do we find hope in all of this? It's interesting, at the end of the story, Tamar has two sons, and it's depicted uh, in the slide that we had. Uh, he, she has two sons to Judah. And in some ways, it's a restoration story, as many of the stories are, right? They're restoration stories. You think of Job, and you think of, of the story of Ruth. All that they lost at the beginning kind of surfaces again at the end. And so we find that true in the story. It's, it's kind of like playing a country song backwards, right? You get your truck back, and you get your dog back, and you get your wife back. Well, this is what's happening. Uh, Judah gets two sons back. And these two sons uh, are very, very important in the line of the Messiah. And we find that out. Right at the end of the passage, and let me just read it for you, we, uh, we find this. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand for like a high five or something, I'm not sure. Uh, the midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand and out came his brother. What? The midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with a scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah, which means scarlet thread or something profound like that. But Perez, Perez means breaking through. And that's the culmination of the whole story, because in this story, we see the grace of God breaking through into the ordinary mess of our humanity. One commentator said it like this, this is how the grace and mercy of God invaded the lives of both Judah and Tamar. It broke through into their hearts and lives in such a way that it changed them forever. The grace and mercy of God broke through into Tamar's life with the redemption of what she had lost as a widow through the birth of her first son. The grace and mercy of God broke through into Judah's life by forcing him to see his heart for what it was and by compelling him to repent and become a new man. The grace of God breaking through. This is our hope. This is our only hope, that God's grace might break through. As I think of my own family tree, I realized that in 1974, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, after my uh, family had come from Scotland, and after a time when uh, my mom had come to a point where she became very addicted to alcohol and drugs and was at the point of being ready to take her own life, she cried out to God, if you're there, save me. And God's grace broke through and changed my mom. And God's grace broke through and transformed our family. And so I stand here today because of Perez, literally, and metaphorically and figuratively, because God's grace broke through into our family tree. 
So let me ask, how is God's grace breaking through into your ordinary humanity this Advent season? Or how would you like it to break through? Maybe we're still waiting. Maybe we're like Tamar and everything seems very, very dark. And we need to wait a little longer, praying that God's grace will break through. So wait for it. Watch for it. And just as light dispels the darkness, so God's grace breaks through the darkness and brings hope. This is the story of Tamar, and this is the story of our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news about your son, Jesus. But we thank you that that good news came at uh, such a cost, and it came through darkness, and it came through sin, and it came through ordinary human endeavor. But most of all, it came because your grace breaks through. Your grace finds us. Father, we want to be found by your grace this Advent season. So we pray that you would renew our hope, that you will break through, and that you'll bring us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm